Welcome back, y'all, to the Wildly Unexplained, episode number 12, the Dyatlov Pass Incident. So today we've kind of got a we've got a real interesting uh, case for y'all. It's going to be a two-parter, um, so we're going to go into it and, uh, you know, just kind of try to go at it from different angles here. Yeah, so we're going to talk this week about the Dyatlov Pass Incident. And ever since we started doing this, Gary, I've always had this case in the back of my mind. It, you know, it's it's a really mysterious case. It's a it's a favorite of many people, you know, just because it's one of the more unexplained cases out there. And it's been decades since this happened. And still, all these years later, there's not a concrete reason or an explanation for what happened that day to these people. But Yeah, and, and you and I have actually had you know had conversations about this one too. Um not not very in depth uh, as as to how we're gonna be today, but you know we we've certainly you know th this has definitely come up in conversation, you know, before. Yeah, because you know we've done mysterious disappearances in the past, and I've always thought about doing the Dial Love Pass incident, but I've been hesitant because this story has so many theories and the amount of information that you can find on this honestly you could do an entire series on it and not exhaust it so that's why i was i was a little apprehensive about even starting this but you know 12 episodes in i said you know what the hell uh, i really wanted to cover this one it deeply interests me and i think it'll be really interesting yeah no and, and there, there's a lot of information you know that goes along with this case so i, I think that the listeners have a real treat you know in this one yeah, so for the first part, I wanted to kind of cover the hikers and, and cover, do the timeline of how these people came to be where they were at. Because like I said, it's it's a really detailed and long story, and I wanted to kind of give a timeline. I also wanted to give a little background on the students, but a little bit of uh, information, you know, of kind of just to set the scene. In February of 1959, nine hikers died in the northern Ural Mountains of the Soviet Union. And the circumstances in which they might have met their demise is, you know, has been shrouded in mystery and conjecture for decades. Yeah, and it's it's one of those cases that really, you know, kind of leaves you scratching your head, you know, as, as you kind of look deeper and deeper into it. Um, you know, so to truly, you know, begin, you know, even understanding the story of the nine hikers, um, you know, who passed away, uh, you know, we, we've got to first look at the individuals who took it upon themselves to tackle, you know, such a daunting task. You know, once you realize their tenacity, dedication, and abilities as hikers and mountaineers, it only poses more questions, you know, to how this group ultimately perished in those mountains. Yeah, I completely agree. And to get it started, Janu January 1959, 10 students from the Ural Polytechnic Institute in Sverlovsk, they set out on a journey into the Ural Mountains, which was supposed to be a test of their skills as a group and as individuals. A little bit about the mountains, the remote northern Euro Mountains, they were about 400 miles north of the city where this group of students lived and studied. It would prove to be a challenge considering this was midwinter and hiking conditions were less than ideal. Which for, you know, for a climate like that, that that's not all that, you know, not all that, you know, weird or, or strange even to say, you know, but uh, the goal of the 14-day expedition was to reach a Torden a mountain six miles north of the site of the incident. This route at that season was estimated as Category 3, which is the most difficult type of expedition. Yeah, and as I began to understand, these students were, were going on this expedition to to get a Category 3 expedition uh, on, their, uh, on their notch of their belt. 
because uh, a lot of them were, like you said, were experienced. Most of them had done Category 1 and Category 2 expeditions. And, you know, they wanted to get this on the resume. And they wanted to go out there and prove that, you know, that they were capable enough to, to complete such a feat. So the leader of the expedition is probably the most famous uh, person, uh, part of the story, is actually Igor Dyatlov, the person whose uh, past was ultimately named after. At 23 years old, Igor was already regarded as a highly experienced skier, hiker, and orienteer. And the rest of the group consisted of two strong and very determined women. And I'm sorry if I butcher some of these names. You know, they're, obviously this was in the Soviet Union. Uh, they're a little difficult to pronounce, yeah. but I'll do my best. These names are a challenge in themselves. Yeah, exactly. So Lyudmila Dubinina, a student of construction industry and economics. At 20 years old, she was the youngest member of the group. 22-year-old Zenaida Komogorova, she was a student of radio engineering. And a girl, as I understand, who drew admiration wherever she went. You know, this is the girl that the guys had crushes on, one of the more, more popular girls at school. And, you know, she was part of this group. The other seven men in the group were 21-year-old Yuri Yudin, and he was a geology student. You know, who, he actually suffered a lifelong uh, problems with rheumatism, heart condition, chronic knee, and back pain. And actually, he's the only one to ever to have come back and survive from this expedition. And we'll get a, a little bit into that later. 23-year-old 20, Rustam Slobodin, he had a degree in mechanical engineering. And he was a lover of music. He enjoyed playing his mandolin. 38-year-old Semyon Solorativ, he was actually a late addition to the group. He's the oldest member of the expedition, obviously. And he was a World War II veteran, an expert in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and he was also a local hiking instructor. You know, he had dozens of expeditions to his name at this point. Yeah, which, again, kind of adds to the mystery behind this. Yeah, and we got 24-year-old Alexander Kolotov. He studied nuclear physics, described as having an imposing physical presence, and he, you can see in a lot of his pictures, he enjoyed smoking his antique pipe. 23-year-old George Kervonyshenko a student of construction and hydraulics. He was considered as the group's kind of gesture and musician. Apparently, he was always making those around him laugh. You know, he always lightened the mood around the area. 21-year-old Yuri Doroshenko, this kid studied radio engineering. He, he was described as impulsive and brave. As I understand, Yuri, at some point, uh, a bear had actually stumbled upon a previous expedition, and Yuri chased him off with a, a ladle, I believe, or a hammer, you know, with a geology hammer, which was... Yeah, it, these, these kids are pretty hardcore. And then last but not least, 23-year-old Nikolai Thibiu-Brenol. He was actually born in one of Stalin's gulags. You know, his father was a French communist who had been imprisoned and executed. And he had earned his degree in industrial civil construction. You know, as I look at all these kids, you know, these men and women, they're all very fit experienced hikers and skiers and it's also important to mention that Igor Dyatlov the leader of this expedition he had led previous parties uh actually the year before he had led a party on a successful expedition using the same route so it goes without saying that you know this group was very confident in Igor's abilities to lead them and they were very confident in their ability to finish this journey yeah, and you know most of the people of the group are members of the Euro Polytechnic Institute um, sports club in Sverloft. Uh, so on the 23rd of January 1959, they spent their day packing their gear and getting their equipment ready for the long and perilous journey. 
Uh, in the rucksacks, they included such things as oatmeal, salt, knives, boots, warm clothing, and all sorts of necessary hiking gear, which, you know, not out of the norm here. Uh, between the group members, a very important part of the story is the fact that they cataloged part of their expedition on a group diary. The first entry on the first day was made by one of the ladies in the group, Zena. So she wrote, and I quote, I wonder what awaits us on this hike. Will anything new happen? Their, uh, their planned route was laid out. They would first take a train to the town Ivdel. From there, a bus would take them north to a small town settlement at Vizay River. Uh, I'm sorry, at Vizay, near the river Ospia. From Vizay, the group was to proceed on a truck which was hired to transport them. Eventually, the terrain would get treacherous enough where they would have to continue their journey on foot and ultimately finish on skis to Mount Atorton. So the yeah, so... distance traveled uh, would be approximately 340 miles, and this is as the crow flies, you know, so straight shot. From mm -hmm. the moment they departed their university until their scheduled arrival back to Sverdlovsk, they were expected to take a total of 22 days. Mm -hmm. So initially on that first day, uh, these kids have been planning this trip for, for weeks, months even. You know, they, they were packing their gear, they were making jokes, and, you know, they were... They were very excited for the trip that was going to happen, you know, and they had laid out this plan in front of them. You know, obviously it was a very long journey, anything from bus to train to on foot. You know, they were really excited. But during the initial trip, the part of the trip, you know, the group bonded on this long train journey north. Rustam actually played his mandolin as the group kind of sang and shared stories with one another. Throughout the trip, the group would look out the window to the Ural Mountains to the left and to the right, they saw the vast emptiness of Siberia. And they occasionally passed small towns, and more common were the military bases or military buildings around the area. So important about a fact about this, you know, during World War II, the Soviet Union had pulled its military production to the Urals out of range from Nazi bombers. And with the Cold War being underway in this time period, travel was actually pretty severely restricted in the area due to the presence of so many nuclear and military facilities. So this kind of led to the speculation by some people to suspect that the government had something to do with the group's mysterious incident. You know, because we have to remember this this was the Soviet Union post the World War and in the middle of the Cold War. So uh, no, they suppressed a lot of information. You know, this was the, the communist way of life was, was very common for these kids. Yeah, and I mean, you know, not, you know, not to, you know, put on my conspiracy hat or anything like that here, but, you know, I wouldn't toss it out of, you know, the realm of possibilities. I mean, yeah, you know, and, anything is possible at this point. We don't know what happened to these kids, so. Yeah, and you got to consider the Soviet Union, they, they were suppressing a lot of information. Like you said, it was a communist uh, rule at this point. And, you know, this this hike was something that these kids, you know, they, they were very much looking forward to because you also got to remember that during this time, uh, anything Western was banned, you know, music, mo the movies they were allowed to watch were only ones that, you know, that were allowed inside the Soviet Union, you know, they didn't have many options. So music and poetry and literature was kind of like their escape. And going on this hike was a way of them to kind of just experience life and, you know, kind of, kind of be free spirits amongst each other without being suppressed. Yeah, and, you know, a lot of people can relate to that as well. You know, just getting out into the wilderness, you know, it, it's, it's, it can be something of like a zen, you know, kind of thing for people, um, mm -hmm. you know, where they just kind of go out there, you know, no, 
no connections to the outside world, you know, completely disconnected. You know, it's it's something that, you know, it just can't be replicated. Yeah, and it kind of speaks to the grit and tenacity of these kids, you know, that they, they decide to take this long trip up a mountain, you know, freezing temperatures and extremely grueling conditions. And when you look at their counterparts on the Western Hemisphere, you know, American kids at this time, you know, they're enjoying parties and a, a prospering economy in the United States and Europe. You know, so these kids are definitely were, were raised differently. You know, they sure they had a lot of grit. Yeah. So the group arrived in the town of Sarav at 7 a.m. on the 24th of January. Uh, upon the arrival, the group had more than 11 hours to kill before they could take the next train to Ibdel. That was, a that was scheduled to depart from the station at 6.30 p.m., so they had a little bit of time in between there. They mm -hmm. were warmly greeted by a school close to the station where they were able to temporarily store their equipment and had been given access to warm water. The first part of their day was spent checking their gear and going over their drills and training. Noon comes... They set up a meeting with the school children in a small cramped room to explain to them their challenging and exciting expedition that lay before them. The children were overjoyed with Zena, who spoke to them individually, asking their names and where they were from. The kids in return asked her endless questions, undoubtedly quickly becoming the favorite of the group. So again, you know, like you said earlier, you know, she's very, very, uh, she's a people person. You know, everybody yeah. likes her. She's the popular one. Um... And it just kind of goes to, you know, without question. Yeah, and you can see it in the pictures, too. Because uh, we didn't go into any details, but like you said, you know, they, they kept a group diary. They also kept uh, individual diaries. And they had multiple cameras to catalog the expedition. And, you know, all these pictures are available online. And you can see that Zena is very much, you know, always uh, interacting with people, hugging with them. You know, she's very much full of life, and, and people were attracted to her. You know, they, they, they gravitated towards her for her personality. Yeah. So eventually the time for them, you know, came for them to grab their gear and head to the station. Uh, the entire school accompanied them to the station to send them off. It was an emotional farewell with some of the kids in tears asking them to stay, which to me is kind of crazy. You know, for them to bond, you know, with these kids like that and, you know, just ultimately have everyone, you know, emotional, you know, with mm -hmm. them leaving. It, it, yeah, you got That's crazy. You got you got to think about the kids that, uh, like you said, you know, they've got not a whole lot of input from the outside world. All they know is communism and, you know, their little bubble. And then you have these college kids who, who are going on this on this expedition, on this adventure. And, you know, the, the kids were attracted to that. You know, that obviously that was something that, that was new to them and new and exciting. And, and, I mean, it just goes to even further to say, you know, how, how awesome these groups of kids were that, you know, they, they interact with these kids so well that, that they're even crying and, you know, wishing that they'd stay with them, you know. But, I mean, it's, like I said, it's just a testament to how these kids were. Yeah, that's for sure. So the journey by train to the town of Vivdell was to be about five and a half hours long. During that trip, the group again began to sing songs and discuss life. Some of the members of the group took the time to study for future exams, as most of them were pursuing advanced degrees in engineering. Ibdel was to be the last major point of contact with civilization that the group would have, been, uh, would have before setting out to the more remote part of the Siberian taiga. Uh, so the Siberian taiga is a vast forest in the northern regions of Russia, covering hundreds of thousands of square miles, and the northern Ural Mountains. So the town of Ibdel was actually the center of the Gulag camp system. 
So the Gulag was a system of forced labor camps established during Joseph Stalin's long reign as, as dictator of the Soviet Union for the entire area, with almost 100 camps of differing sizes surrounding the area. Yeah, and I don't know how much you know about the Gulag, but you know the, the very little bit that, that we know and the information that's available, these were practically concentration camps, working camps that you know the Soviet Union had placed its enemies in here and you know the, in catastrophic conditions, they were worked to the bone, they were starved, and you know it was just a, a humanitarian crisis for many years. Now you were thrown in here, no judge, no jury, just uh, if, you, if you were deemed an enemy of the Soviet Union, you, know, you were placed in these camps. And, and around these areas were many of those camps. Yeah, they, they certainly did not play around you know, in, in, that, in that time zone. No. The group arrived shortly after midnight at the train station. So here they kept their gear and equipment at a waiting room where they took turn keeping watch while the rest of the group kind of waited and rested. And they waited for the bus to get to get there, so it'll take them to Vizai early the next morning. So from here, they were roughly 90 miles away from Mount Otorten. They arrived in Vizai around 2 p.m., and here they decided to spend the night of the 25th into the 26th before continuing to the next point in their journey. Here, the group cataloged in their journal that they found accommodations in a so-called hotel, which, considering the living conditions of the Soviet Union, they would have relatively had different meanings by today's standards. You know, so one thing, there weren't enough beds for all 10 members of the group, so they had to sleep in pairs of two in the beds that were available. With Alexander and Krivoy, you know, they were sleeping on the floor. Yeah, and the next morning, they woke up around 9 a.m. to the realization that a window had been left open, and the outside temperature was 1 degree Fahrenheit. Um, that's cold. So, the group of hikers were given goulash and tea by the hotel for breakfast, but the property had extremely poor heating capabilities, with most of the building being in sub-freezing temperatures. So, recharged and excited to press on, the group set out to the next point on their journey at 1 p.m., which was to the 41st Kvartal. Uh, which is a camp for geologists and workers in the area. They were to take a large open flatbed truck where a picture of them was taken showing them exposed to the elements, huddled together, but seemed in good spirits anyway. Uh, on their three-hour journey, freezing, the group occupied their time seeing and discussing various topics which included love, friendship, and the problems of finding a cure for cancer, which, you know, typical, you know, early to mid-20, you know, conversation, you know. Uh, so despite the group making the best of the situation, Yuri Yudin was severely affected by the bitter cold. He had actually developed a chill, which caused him lower back pain and, and gave him acute pain in his leg. Mm -hmm. And you know, a little bit about the flatbed. And I've actually posted a picture of the group at the back of the flatbed on our Twitter a couple days ago. You know, it, the the speed the this picture speaks volumes because obviously it's freezing cold and you can see these kids, you know, they're huddled up and they're laughing. You know, obviously they're they're miserable, but they're still making light of the situation. You know, it's just they're pretty strong individuals. It's a pretty cool picture. Online, I mean I, I might post some more on the Patreon, but it, it, it really is a cool picture. But Yeah, you, you read my mind on that. That was actually a really cool picture. Yeah, and like you said, obviously Yuri, who had a bunch of problems with his back and arthritis and all, all sorts of things, so obviously he was the most affected due to this trip. You know, he was in the back of his truck for hours in freezing temperatures, so, you know, he developed a chill, his back pain got worse, he got acute pain in his leg, and, you know, it just kept, it kept 
becoming increasingly problematic. So, you know, once they arrived at the camp, they were given their own private room to rest and kind of go over their gear. While at camp, uh, the hikers spoke to the workers, ate lunch, and they rested. Some of these, uh, some of the some of these uh, spent their time watching films. Rustem, like he typically was, was playing his mandolin. He loved that freaking mandolin. And George Krivonyshenko, he actually spent his time going over their equipment, making sure they had everything they need for the next leg of their trip. So the next morning, 27th of January, in one of their journal entries, the weather for the day is described as being, and I quote, good. The wind was at their backs, and they agreed with the locals at the camp to be given a horse and a guide to take them to the next point in their trip, which was an abandoned settlement roughly 15 miles away. And before departing, they purchased loaves of soft, warm bread for the journey. And at 4 p.m., they left the camp uh, with the trek being made much easier by the horse, obviously, pulling their packs and equipment on the cart. It was a slow process, though, for the horse to pull their equipment. Uh, they only covered roughly four miles in two hours. And at some point during this fifth day of the expedition on the 27th of January, Yuri's uh, illness had worsened. You know, the pain in his leg had only gotten worse. It was becoming obvious that he wasn't going to be able to handle the physical demands of the rest of the journey up these mountains. So much so that the group actually placed him on the horse cart to alleviate his pain on the trip up to the camp. But being that they moved so slow, part of the group moved ahead to set up a camp and build a fire until eventually the slow part of the group and supplies arrived later that night. But when they got there, the camp was severely dilapidated. And even several members of the group had pierced their hands on old nails as they were trying to gather wood for a fire. But once they settled in, they sat, they warmed themselves, talking and singing until 3 a.m. before finally going to sleep. Man, I would not be singing if I had pierced my hands with nails. Yeah, and it's freezing <laughs> cold outside and you're in this dilapidated yeah. uh, hut. But, you know, it's just that's how these kids were. Yeah, that, that's how they roll. Yeah. But the next morning on the 28th, the weather was good, clear visibility. You know, the temperatures were not exceedingly cold at 18 degrees Fahrenheit, which is still pretty damn cold. Slightly warmer than the average for the time of the year. The members of the group began preparing for the toughest part of the journey yet, with most verifying their boots and skis, which were a necessity for the grueling hike up the mountain. Uh, it was this day that Yuri had decided to return to Slur uh, excuse me, Sverdlovsk, I, that's a hard one to pronounce, early due to the complications of his illness. It was a solemn moment for the group, cataloged in one of the diary entries written by Luda, stating that it was a pity that Yuri had to return. So photos show Luda embracing Yuri genuinely and warmly, while others show Zena touching his face as a gesture of affection. Yuri was the only surviving member of the expedition. He would contemplate for the rest of his life what happened to his friends on that mountain and why he was fortunate enough to not suffer their feet. Yeah, and that was a tough, uh, that picture where she's kind of holding his face. You can see, actually, Igor, the, the leader of the group in the background, smiling. You can tell that, you know, this was a bummer for them. It was disappointing that, that Yuri wasn't able to continue. Uh, it was a telling picture, to say the least. Yeah, but, and I mean, when you really think about this, too, you know, that's something that these kids really cherished, you know, and it was it was them together, you know, climbing this hike, or climbing this mountain and, and out in the wilderness, and it was them together. Mm -hmm. So it was it was a it's very much so you know what they kind of live for.
Yeah, and it was kind of a blessing in disguise that Yuri had all these underlying issues because obviously he wasn't able to continue, but due to this fact that he wasn't able to continue, he was the only surviving member of this expedition, you know, so the rest of his life he kept, you know, he, he kept looking back because Yuri had no idea what happened to his friends up in that mountain, you know, the, no actual explanation was ever found, and, you know, I'm sure this was difficult for him. It's probably on his mind all the time. Yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a weird twist of fate. Yeah. So after saying their goodbyes, the remaining nine members of the group set out you know, on the first day of their journey on skis out into the mountains and away from civilization. These parts of the mountain were well-known by Monsi hunters, indigenous people of the area. Um, there weren't any signs of habitation or prominent settlements in that remote area. Mm-hmm. And the journey of the mountain was pretty well cataloged in their diary entries because, like you, like I said, most of them kept uh, individual diaries and they had a group diary, and they did a pretty good job cataloging this. And all this information is online. Obviously, their their diaries are, are written in in Russian, but uh, you know, they're they were all all the text and material was translated. And it's available online, and you can get a better sense of how this trip was. But it was, uh, you know, it was pretty standard, you know, because all these kids were hikers, you know, they had experience doing this. But, you know, judging by their journal entries, uh, we know that they followed the river Lozva, which each member of the group taking turns leading the pack for 10 minutes at a time. It was a it was a hard hike because the group had to constantly stock, uh, stop and wipe the melted snow off their skis. And at the back of the group, George Krivonoshenko, he was actually making sketches of the route and the terrain. So at 5.30 p.m. on the 28th, they actually made camp. They, they decided to stop and make camp. So the group had a rather large tent that Igor actually had customized uh, with a friend of his. The tent was big enough to sleep 11 people, so it was completely big. You know, it, it was a very large tent. Mm-hmm. Um, very much, pre- you know, so prepared for obviously the hike that they're pursuing on the interior had curtains, which facilitated individual compartments inside to provide some privacy for Zena and Luda. Very nice one. Igor yeah. had built a stove that could be placed inside the tent on the front entrance with the chimney going out of the tent. Unfortunately, the stove was difficult to assemble and required hours to fully put it together. They cooked and ate dinner, sat around the campfire, talking and singing along with Rustem, playing his mandolin, naturally. Yeah. Uh, it's cataloged in the diary that an argument had broken out on this night due to the fact that nobody wanted to sleep right next to the stove, which was right at the front entrance of the tent. The group made a decision to have Yurka and George to sleep there without discussing it with them first. George does not take that decision lightly, as he supposedly became furious and accused others of betraying him. So it's important to remember that he had slept on the floor in the hotel in the days prior to this point. You know, so George might have been justified in being displeased you know, at this point with the group. So the argument must have blown over, you know, on, on this on the next day of the trip, uh, not to mention of the argument um, that was cataloged in the, di- in the diary. The group then departed and moved from the River Lozva to the River Ospia following a sleigh and deer trail used by the Monsi hunters. So they continued to make progress day after day on their expedition with little difficulties. Yeah. And a little bit about the the stove that I kind of wanted to touch up on. The 
the stove was was pretty massive and you know maybe later we'll get into more information of of how the stove might have played part in the and this group's mysterious death but like you said it took hours to assemble but obviously there's there's pictures online of and diagrams of how the stove was set up it was pretty ingenious by igor how he set this thing up you know they they were able to have warmth and able to cook dinner while inside the tent you know, I, I was I was just thinking that you know for for the time period, um, that that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's pretty badass. It, it was cool. It was an ingenious design, you know, obviously, but it took a long time to build. But just the fact that they're able to have you know a fire inside the tent and the exhaust, you know, able to you know fully go out without uh, giving too many difficulties, able to cook dinner inside their tent. It's pretty ingenious. It's a pretty cool aspect, you know, coupled with the fact that they, you know, Yuri had kind of had this custom tent. So the dude at 23 years old, you know, he he had a a lot of skills, to say the least. You know, he he had led expeditions in the past. People were very confident in his abilities, and he was very sought out after to lead expeditions by multiple people. Well, I think it's safe to say that this is a bunch of real smart kids. Yeah, I mean, you could say the least engineering, nuclear physicist. Uh, right. I mean, that's that's pretty interesting. And yeah. Pretty. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, pretty impressive. It's it's very impressive. Um, but on the third day of their foot and ski travel, they move into Monty territory. So here they reference the signs and markings on the trees they pass, which were used by local hunters to signify how many of them had passed. Uh, along the trail and to which family or clan that they actually belong to. As they started to move away from the thicker forest into areas with shorter trees and pines, you know, finding suitable places to camp was proving to be more difficult. And on the 31st of January, it's recorded that they slowly left the Ospia Valley, gradually only covering about one mile per hour. You know, this was because the elevation was beginning to rise Visibility kept reduce, reducing as they kept heading further up the mountain, and the deep snow was posing a new challenge for the group, forcing them to rotate, leading the group in a single file, where the first person would uh, make a trail so the rest could follow. So one person would take point, they'd take the backpack off, give it to somebody in the back, and they'd kind of flatten the snow. Obviously, this is really grueling to do. You know, This is a, a couple feet, uh, up to three feet of snow. They're compacting the snow. The person behind them was flattening it out so the, the rest of the group could follow it. And, you know, they, they kept uh, rotating this throughout their journey. This was obviously why it was taking them so long to move. And it was becoming an exhausting journey, but through teamwork, they were persevering. Granted, all the members of the group, like we said, they had previous experience dealing with these situations. You know, so it wasn't to be taken lightly, but, you know, they, they had experience doing this. But even even with experience, though, I mean, think about how you know, like you just said, think about how exhausting, you know, that's got to be. Yeah, absolutely, it's it's brutal. You know, it's, I mean, you've we both walked in snow, and we know how difficult it can be. And you know, they're doing this for miles and hours and in grueling conditions. It's it's yeah, very difficult. Yeah, for sure. It yeah, it is. But uh, so they made camp at the edge of the forest on the night of the thirty first. The following day, on the 1st of February, the final part of the last entry in the diary says, and I quote, Tired and exhausted, we start to prepare the platform for the tent. Firewood is not enough. We didn't dig a hole for a fire. Too tired for that. We had supper right in the tent. 
Hard to imagine such a comfort somewhere on the ridge, with a piercing wind hundreds of kilometers away from human settlements, end quote. Yeah, it was pretty ominous uh, last uh, log entry. Uh, you know, obviously the last one that they made. And nothing else was cataloged by the group on the remainder of their journey into the mountain pass of, on Skola, uh, Kola Siakl, which, you know, it's a mancy word and translated, it actually kind of translates over to dead mountain. Uh, if you can believe that yeah. it's a little it's a little grim to think about but i believe they call it dead mountain because nothing grows here but obviously when you think of dead mountain you, you think of something pretty ominous right right but mm-hmm. well we can only speculate that the group continued their journey as usual packing up their tent and moving slowly towards their destination and one of the last photographs taken by the group shows them moving forward but the visibility appeared to have been very, very poor at this point. Yeah, and just to kind of go back to, you know, what we were just discussing, you know, as far as, you know, them being physically exhausted and, and making this, this I mean, hardcore trek, it's kind of crazy to think about that. You know, in the weather conditions that they were doing this and the physicality of this hike and of this expedition – um, for me, it's kind of crazy. No, it's definitely difficult to say the least. And, you know, they were, they were on the, one of the final legs of the journey. They, they were, they were probably a few days March away from finishing their hike and, and making their way back down. You know, this was obviously the most difficult part of the trek. And, you know, as stated by the pictures and the log entries, you know, very difficult, but, you know, something that they've done in the past, but, you know, this was the last journal entry and we're kind of running low on time here for episode one. And uh, I think we've, we've reached a pretty good stopping point because, like I said, I wanted to lay out like these kids, kind of give a little background on them and give a little bit of the timeline to kind of show you what these kids went through to get to the point that they were. You know, they were obviously very determined and they had the skill set and the gear to do it. But obviously a testament to what we just read it, it was a very difficult and grueling journey and for the yeah. next episode you know we can get into what actually might have happened to these uh hikers on dead mountain yeah next episode is going to be pretty sweet um you know we're gonna we're gonna really try to you know come at this from a couple different angles and um you know just bring some light to this yeah definitely and you know stay tuned for the next episode we'll drop this one and then the next one will be readily available but uh you know we're gonna try to post uh, some more information you know more more data on the dialogue pass incident more pictures check out our social media you know follow us there on twitter facebook instagram on youtube sorry we're a little behind on the youtube page it's been hectic for both of us yeah, these past few weeks have been nothing short of grueling. Yeah, and I'm sure it's, it has been for a lot of you with the whole coronavirus thing and the pandemic looming. But, you know, we're, we're going to keep trucking forward. I know a lot of you guys are stuck at home, and yeah, we're going to try to bring content for you guys. Yeah. So be sure to subscribe and leave a review for us. Uh, as you know, we've said previously, it helps us out greatly, um, helps other people find our podcast, helps them – you know, decide if they want to listen to it or not. So, you know, please give us a, re- a review at Apple Podcasts. I know a majority of you guys listen on there. Um, so please leave us a review. 
Yeah, and make sure you check out the Bearded Bean Coffee Company. You know, get some coffee, get some mugs. You can get a, a 10%, was it a 10% or a 15% discount? Yeah. 15. 15% discount at checkout using the code WILDLY. So make sure you check them out. Absolutely. But that's enough time for today. Gary checking out. See you later, brother. Take care.